Well, if you will, open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning, I want us to see the glory and the authority of Christ as displayed in a local church. And as you're flipping there, I want you to think about this question. If you could do anything in the world, if you had all authority, what would you choose to do? What would you do with all the money in the world? What would you do with all the power in the world? Well, I think we have a few examples of people um, who can basically do whatever they want to do, earthly speaking. So some of the richest men in the world are right here in America. So you think of somebody like Bill Gates, who started Microsoft and is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. How does he use that power and authority that he has? Well, uh, he recently divorced his wife and then is in the process of advocating for population control and abortion access in places like Africa and other third world countries. Uh, Jeff Bezos is the founder of Amazon, and he is one of the richest men in the world. He also recently divorced his wife, and unlike Bill Gates, he, uh, they both started off looking about the same. So if you've ever seen pictures of them when they were young and they were just starting their companies, they basically worked out of their garages. They just looked like, you know, nerdy little guys, typical kind of computer nerds. And Bill Gates basically still looks like that, right? But Jeff Bezos now um, looks like some kind of like Incredible Hulk type guy. So he's putting his resources into his body. And he's got a new lady on his shoulder uh, every week that you see a picture. He's on his yacht. um, And he's also advocating um, for similar things such as population control and abortion access. Um, Even somebody like Elon Musk, who is a little more conservative than those guys, Um, he apparently has had about 20 children out of wedlock with about 10 different women, um, many of whom have come forward and talked about the devastation that it's had on their lives and in the lives of their children. So this is just three encouraging examples of men who have lots of power and authority and what they're doing with that. Well, we know one man who actually has all authority, who actually has all power, And when we think about the Great Commission, for example, Jesus makes it clear that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Well, what does he do with that authority? What does he do with that kind of power? Well, really, the whole storyline of Scripture is that Jesus, God himself, understood that sinful humanity was lost and without hope in rebellion against him. So Jesus left the glories of heaven in order to pursue his bride, who was an enemy, who was running from him, who was unfaithful to him, and yet he left heaven and he sought after her. She, he opened up her eyes to see his beauty. This reminds me of a conversation I had with Heather and I when we were in the car driving to, uh, to Florida last week. And I said, I met my wife, by the way, right here at Bullet Lick Baptist Church. They, they grow them good here in, in Shepherdsville. And I asked her, because I was talking about how one of the first things I noticed about her was her, was her smile and, 
she just had such a great personality. I said, what was the first thing you noticed about me? She said, oh, I didn't really notice you. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I think that's probably pretty typical of some, some marriages, right? That the man recognizes something that's attractive to the woman, and he pursues her, and it takes a while for the woman to come around and see all our great qualities, right? But that's really what happened with us. We were not seeking after Jesus. In fact, we were seeking after um, all the things, all the idols of our own hearts. We were being adulterous towards our Creator, and yet Jesus sought us. He changed our hearts. He opened up our eyes to see His beauty, and then He gave His life to redeem us. And then He gathered us together into local churches, and now He's sanctifying us. He's purifying us. He's preparing us for that wedding feast of the Lamb in which He's going to be faithful to us forevermore. That's a totally different use of power than what, the author- than what the authorities and powerful men of this world do. Praise be to God that that's our Lord. And so I hope that as we are reading this passage that we see that our king has a purpose for his church. and He has a plan for us and we get the pleasure of walking in it. And ultimately that plan is that Christians are called out of the world, called in together in the church, And they're called to repeat that process over and over again until the ends of the earth are reached for his glory. So with that in mind, let's read from Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. The word of God says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, Dr. Oreck last week talked about the importance of us understanding that we ought to live for more than just what this world has to offer. He told the story about how his dad would often tell him as he was getting ready to go out as a teenager, remember, you're an Oreck. And that meant something, that he ought to live in a manner worthy of that name. Well, how much more so for us who have been bought by the king of the universe and are called by his name, Christian, how much more ought we to live in a manner worthy of his great name? When we think about our ultimate duty in this life, we think about the catechism question, what is the chief purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, what does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to live for his glory? Well, ultimately, the Hebrew word glory, which is kavod, is virtually identical with the Hebrew word for weightiness, for weight. So glorifying God means that we take seriously what he says we ought to take seriously. That we don't make light of things that he says we ought not make light of it. Now, the world constantly makes light of the things of God. In fact, they take the name of God and they turn it into a common cuss word. They take the word hell, and they just use it flippantly. They're making light of it. They're not giving it the glory and the seriousness that it deserves. We ought not be like that. We ought to live in a manner worthy of our calling. You know, I think about Jesus himself in his glorified form after he was resurrected. You remember in the scriptures and the gospels, it tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, he's in his glorified form, the same way that we will be um, after we are resurrected from the dead, that all of a sudden he's able 
to pass through walls, to pass through locked doors as if they're not even there. And I think when we read those stories that so often Christians think, well, that's because he was kind of like a ghost, right? He's some kind of spirit being. He's just kind of wispy so he can pass through substantial things. But I think it's actually the exact opposite. I think that being glorified means that we are so substantial, we are so weighty, we are so rich in our being that it makes the things of this world seem like nothing. He's able to pass through the substantial things of this world as if they're not even there. That's what it means to live in view of our calling. To live in a manner worthy of what God God calls us to live to is to give weight to what God gives weight to. The church is one of those things. The church is one of those things that God gives great weight to. Think about when Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Jesus was ascended into heaven. Saul was not physically persecuting the person, Jesus Christ, but he was persecuting whom? His church. You see, Jesus sees his church as if we ought, as in the same way that we ought to see our relationship with our spouses, that we are one flesh, and you cannot separate one from the other. Jesus gives great weight to his church. And now he tells us that one of the ways that we can glorify him, one of the ways that we can live in a manner worthy of his calling, is to understand the weightiness of the church. The church is the gospel made visible. The way that we preach God's word, the way that we sing God's word, the way that we display the gospel in the Lord's Supper, in baptism. These are all things that are meant to change us week after week, month after month, and year after year. They're substantial. They matter. Now, in contrast to this, Paul goes on to tell us that we ought to have such a weightiness, such a richness to our church life that we have nothing to fear from the outside world. Look in verse 28 with me. Paul goes on to say, Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. You see, the church ought to be so distinct from the world that it's like two different peoples. The church ought to be so different from the world that when somebody steps foot into the church and gets to know us as a people, they say there is something so different about them that something in their lives has changed them. The the sun, when it is about to, to, to rise, is always rising in the darkest part of the night. Those of you guys who have ever seen a sunrise... The, the darkness is always dark, darkest right before the dawn. And it's amazing because the sun 
pierces through that darkness. And there's such a contrast that the sun looks more glorious because of it. That's how the church ought to be against the backdrop of the darkness of the world. Now, unfortunately, many churches seek to be like the world because they think that's what will attract the world. That's the worst thing we could do. Our distinction from the world is what ought to delineate us from the lost and the broken. Ultimately, Charles Spurgeon illustrated this by saying, if we add to our churches by becoming worldly, by taking in persons who have never been born again, if we add to our churches by accommodating the life of the Christian to the worldling, our increase is worth nothing at all. In other words, if we try to be like the world, to win the world, we could probably fill up a lot of buildings. There's a lot of buildings in this area. they got thousands and thousands of people on Sundays. They attract people by using the means that attracts the world. Now, whatever you attract them with, that's what you got to keep them with. And when you use the means of the world, which are mostly entertainment, distraction, amusement, then you better keep on one-upping yourself week after week or they're going to be gone to the next best place. But when you actually use the means that God has given, the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, the fellowship of the saints, that's how God builds us up day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year so that we can stand firm in him. You see, the world is full of distractions. I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, I think one of the reasons that Dr. Oreck is such a uniquely godly man is because he's so countercultural. <laughs> you probably never met anybody like him. He's so different in so many ways. And most notably, it's because he doesn't give himself over to the same distractions and amusements that we do. It gives him time to slow down, to read the word, to pray, to read good books, so that his heart is therefore cultivated towards the things of God and not towards the things of this world. May we learn from that example. And may we grow in our love for God and the influence that God has on us much more than the world influences us. I mean, think about it. You come and you gather with the saints for about an hour once a week. Is that enough to combat all the influences that the world has upon you hour by hour, day after day? not. The church is more than just gathering on Sunday, as important as that is. The church is to be lived out life on life throughout the week. This is God's means for sanctifying us and for keeping us. Let's be distinct from the world. Let's let people see that we have no fear of anything that's coming, that we don't have any fear of the consequences of us standing firm in the gospel. Let us show others that we are different and we've been transformed by Christ. You know, ultimately the world, world says, live for yourself. Christ says, die to yourself. The world says, live for today. And Christ says, live for eternity. The world says, you only live once. So live your best life now. We say, only one life to live that shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The world tells men to delay responsibility. Tells young men that a thousand women is better than just one for a lifetime. Family can wait. Career is more important than anything. 
But we say that it's far more manly to have one woman a thousand times than to have a thousand women one time. And there's nothing better than marriage and family and living for God's glory. The world tells women that being a servant of career and corporation is liberating and that serving their families and their husbands is slavery. We say the exact opposite. Are we distinct from the world? Are our hearts shaped by the scriptures? I pray that we would examine it, examine our hearts and see if we've been shaped more by the world or by the scriptures. The second thing I want us to see is that God's glory and authority is displayed in those that he calls to live together in the local church. So we're called out of the world to be clearly distinct from the world. And then we're called to live together, sanctifying, edifying one another within the body of the local church. Read with me in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. So... So because we know these things, because we're called to be distinct from the world, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You think unity is important in the local church? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, I think we fail to realize just how much our culture influences us. For example, in American culture, we are a very individualistic culture. We are very centered on ourselves, our homes. (laughs) We were passing a house even on the way here. And you know how sometimes there's like a, a long sign that says welcome and it's really flowery, right? Well, there's a home right up here, like just a few miles up the road, and it's a big flowery sign right on the front door, and it says, go away. (laughs) And I thought to myself, that's pretty typical of the typical American home, right? We view our home as a fortress of solitude, as opposed to a place where we can be hospitable and live lives with others. That's culturally imprinted on us. And when you get to another culture, you can see just how individualistic we are. So often we read the scriptures like that. We are reading a letter that's written to the church at Philippi. He's not just, teach, he's not just talking to individual believers out there on their own. And virtually every book of the New Testament is the exact same way. We're studying the book of Revelation, our sermon series with Dr. Oric. Guess what? It's written to seven churches. If you take the local church out of the New Testament, you don't have anything left. So let's read the scriptures with that in mind. That he's calling us to practice these things with one another within the confines of the local church. So if you have friends who consider themselves churchless Christians... Or somebody who doesn't need the church to worship God. They can do it just as well out on the lake. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. It's like saying dry water. Doesn't go together. Have you guys ever seen how... um, Maybe you've watched a, a show about a safari. And a lion is hunting zebras. You never see lions just run straight into the middle of the pack of zebras. What do they do? They wait until either a young or or sick zebra 
gets separated out on its own. You know why? Because the whole point of the stripes on the zebras is that when they're together, they make it confusing for the lions to be able to pick out just one of them. That's the whole point of the stripes. But guess what? When one gets separated, man, he's easy to spot. He is easy to spot. And Satan is like a roaring lion looking for those that he can devour. Don't be that zebra out on your own. Lean into the local church. Depend on one another so that we can protect one another, edify one another, sanctify one another. Have you ever considered the fact that your attendance here is an encouragement to your other brothers and sisters here? You ever thought about that? I mean, I just look around the room, and there's so many people here that I'm just so encouraged to see week by week. Like, I actually like you guys. Like, what a blessing. I was telling Heather the other day, I was like, you know, I've had friends over the years I just didn't really like. I mean, I just kind of had to hang out with them. They were my friends. I didn't really like them. But I got a lot of friends here I actually like. Praise the Lord, right? Now, sometimes that takes time. It's like a real family to where I think about my daughter Waverly, who we adopted from Ethiopia. She didn't have any say in which family chose her. And none of us and the families we were born into got to choose our parents or our brothers or sisters. That's how it is in the church. Those who are born again don't get to choose, right, who um, the family of God that we're born into. But I think too often we think that we ought to choose a church like we're a consumer. We have a checklist. We're going to find the things that suit us, suit our children, music we like, all those kind of things. That's not how God has designed the church to be. God has designed the church to challenge us, to edify us, to unite us with people that aren't exactly the same as us. The world does that. In, in missions, when um, some of the first missionaries went to India, if you guys are aware, in India, the vast majority of the country is Hindu, and they have a caste system. That if you were born into a certain caste or a certain level of society, you cannot escape that caste in this life. You've got to be reborn into another caste by your good works in this life. And so when people started coming to the Lord, the Christians began to say, well, we can't just have churches that just cater to one caste. We've got to combine these castes because we're all one in Christ. And the Indians started to think, well, this is terrible. We can't do this because they didn't understand the gospel. The gospel unites all of us regardless of of poor or rich, black, white, male or female. We're all one. In Christ. That's the beauty of the church, and that ought to be different than the world. More than that, we, we see here that we're to live in humility. Verse 3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I think when we hear the word humility, we often have a misunderstanding that humility means we ought to think less of ourselves, meaning we ought to think that we're less important than we are, we ought to think we're less intelligent, we ought to think we're less gifted, we ought to think that we are actually lesser than we actually are. Well, that can't possibly be the meaning of the word humility here because Paul has just told us to live in a manner worthy of your calling. And we're Christians, sons of the Most High. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, humility is a right estimation of who you are. It's a right estimation of who you are. And when we're living in humility toward each other, it's a right estimation of who 
others are as well. There's this amazing quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is really helpful for us as we not only think about each other in the church and how we ought to serve one another, but also the lost outside of the church. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, wrote this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Man, that's convicting. When we rightly estimate not only ourselves but others... We remember that all of us are created in the image of God. And that we have an eternal destination, which if we could see one another in our glorified forms, we would be tempted to bow down and worship one another. It would be so glorious. Or the loss that we know, if we would consider their eternal destination, it would be so horrendous that we'd be tempted to turn our faces away and never look at them again. We're called here in this passage to rightly view others and to put their interests above ourselves. Within the context of the church, let's love each other, remembering that we are spurring one another on to this eternal destination. In our outreach, and our evangelism, may we remember the eternal destination of the lost. And may we live to preach the gospel to them so that they may be redeemed so that they may be adopted and become part of this family that we hold so dear. And as we do all this, we're not left on our own, but we have a high priest who is familiar with our struggles, with our temptations, and he's a glorified example for us of how to live this life. Look with me in verse 5. So have this mind among yourselves. All the things we've talked about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have access to these kind of affections for others. You have access to this kind of love for the Father. Jesus did all that I told you about in pursuing his bride, in in sanctifying us, in redeeming us. He did it all for the glory of his Father. May we live in the same way, with the same power of Christ. Verse 6, who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So may we learn how to live the Christian life by looking to Christ. May we humble ourselves, serve one another like Christ served us. You know, one of the things that has always been the hardest for me in ministry and even with my family is being patient. Especially early on in the ministry, I would just think, why aren't you growing? 
Why aren't you maturing in the faith? I, I would compare them to, to myself sometimes, not realizing all the people who have poured into me and been patient with me and not thinking that I have so much farther to go still in my Christian life. And then I started to think about Jesus and his long-suffering with us. Man, he is patient with us. He is so slow to anger with us. We deserve such consistent discipline. In reality, we deserve to be like that adulterous bride who should just be cast off. And yet he's faithful, even when we are faithless. Let's be patient with one another. Let's love each other and serve each other. Let's be open, transparent with one another. You know, so often we overestimate ourselves. When we're trying to cultivate these hearts that are like Christ, we often think we're a lot further along than other people think we are. I had a pastor once tell me that he had a uh, meeting with one of his fellow elders, and his fellow elder said, man, you're harsh in the way you deal with people. And the pastor thought to himself, I thought I was being really nice. I never realized I was being harsh with people. He would have never even known it if his fellow elder hadn't came and talked to him about it. So let's be transparent with one another. Let's allow each other into our lives so that we can grow together and glorify God. And then finally, verse 9. Therefore, because of all that Christ did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, ultimately, we serve a risen, victorious king. And now he's given us a very urgent and important responsibility. He's turned us in to ambassadors for his kingdom. And churches, just like this, are meant to be outposts of the kingdom in enemy territory all over the world. And we need to live like we're in wartime and not in peacetime. You ever thought about the difference between peacetime and wartime? Some of you guys lived during World War II. Some of you guys lived during the the Vietnam War, where you actually had to make sacrifices. You had to live for a cause greater than yourself. The world doesn't live like that right now. The world lives to serve themselves. We don't have to live like that. We don't have to create our own purpose. We've got a higher purpose. We have a higher calling. There's a reason that oftentimes when men return from the military, they have a hard time adjusting to normal civilian life. It's because they had somebody telling them what to do 24-7 in the military. They had a commander. They knew exactly what they needed to do every day. We've got a commander. We've got somebody who's telling us what to do and how to live, what to live for. Will we listen to him? Will we live for his glory or will we live for our own? And part of that is that we are living to serve one another within the local church. That ultimately we are calling people everywhere, whether it's here in Shepherdsville, whether it's in Ecuador or wherever it may be to the ends of the earth, we are not people who are calling others and just begging them to to accept Jesus. 
We're not on our knees. We're not painting a picture of Jesus because we are a representation of Him. We're not painting a picture of Him as this poor, pitiful Savior who just hopes that He can save somebody. We're representatives of the King of the universe who commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. We have the authority of Christ in our mouths. The keys of the kingdom that we read about in the book of Matthew were given to Peter, who is a representation of the apostles, and now those same kings, keys of the kingdom, that same authoritative message of Peter's confession of the gospel is given to his churches. That's why in the Great Commission, we see that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, and then he calls us to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that he has commanded us. Where do we do those things? Right here in the church. If you're tempted to just baptize your family in your bathtub with just you guys around or take the Lord's Supper together just around the dinner table, you don't understand the church. The whole point is that we gather together and we encourage each other and then that the people who are witnessing this baptism are not just spectators, they're participants. And they're promising to help this new believer throughout his Christian life. That's what we're called to do. We have a weighty, a substantial calling. We ought to live in light of this calling. So let's be the gospel made visible. Let's be a tiny piece of heaven right here on earth. Let's show the world what the kingdom is like. And let's not let the world discourage us. You're going to hear people say, I don't want to go to Bullet Lick Baptist Church. I don't want to go to any church. It's full of hypocrites. That's true. Church is full of hypocrites. And you, my friend, if you come with us, just going to be one more. Just going to be one more hypocrite among all the rest of us. But you know what? The good news is that even all the accusations that Satan may throw at us, that we're liars, that we're cheats, we're adulterers at heart, we're murderers in our heart, we've disobeyed God, we don't deserve heaven, we're not good enough, we could look at him and say, you're absolutely right. But Jesus is perfect. And Jesus has saved us. And he's gathered us together. And he's purifying his bride for that wedding day. When we will walk down the aisle and we'll see our Savior face to face. And we will be spotless and glorified to live with him forevermore. That's the glory of the church and the Christian life as we live it together. So let me encourage you. Do you love what Jesus loves? He loves his church more than anything else in all creation. He loves his church. He loves his bride so much that he died for her. Are we willing to skip the weekend at the lake to gather together with her? Is she our priority when we consider a new job? Is she our priority? And when we consider a new move, is she a priority as we consider our weekend plans? Now, I'm not saying you're sinning if you go to the lake every once in a while. But I am saying that whatever, especially dads in here, whatever you make a priority is more than likely what's going to be a priority for your kids. Let's prioritize and love the church like Jesus does. When we were considering moving back from Ecuador, 
to take the position in missionary mobilization, I was really content in all that we were doing on the mission field. The Lord was moving. We were doing great ministry. I talked to Dr. Oric, talked to the elders, and I would never have even considered coming back if Bullet Lick wasn't the church that we were going to be coming back to. I just would have never considered it. The church weighed that heavily in my decision-making in what our ministry would be. I would pray that for you guys, in whatever decision it may be, that faithfulness and service and love for your local church would be the primary factor that you think about as you make decisions because Jesus loves his church and we ought to love her as well. This is where we grow together. This is where we glorify, glorify Christ. And I pray that we would encourage each other, sharpen each other to do that more and more day by day. Before I pray, let's not be like the world. The world is full of distractions. Many churches are full of the world. And so they have these, these big, fabulous services. It's very emotional. It's an experience. You get it for an hour every Sunday, then you go home and you live like the world. Because we do that day after day. We get distracted, we get amused, but it never changes us. That's not how God's kingdom is meant to be. God's kingdom is more like the bread that you eat every day. The pill that you take to stay healthy. The exercise that you do to stay in shape. You may not remember this sermon next week, but it's shaping you. You may not remember the songs that we sing tomorrow, but they're changing your heart. God is working by the very fact that you are here and the gospel is being preached into your heart. The gospel is being sung from your mouth, not just to God's ears, but to our ears as well. Called to encourage each other. You're being shaped day by day by the simple means of grace that God has said will overcome the world and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. So let's participate in those for his glory. Let's pray.